Hey there, it's Miller DeRay with Team Johnson, and this episode of Build Your Tribe is a little bit different today because Shalene is the actual guest. You're about to hear her interview with Chandler Bolt on his podcast, Self-Publishing School. While the subject of this episode has to do with the process of writing a book when you have ADHD, I found it relatable, with awesome tips, by the way, to anyone who is trying to get a project off the ground, started, finished, completed, but struggles with focus and getting distracted really easily. So I have a feeling that you're going to find it relatable and worthwhile too. Enjoy the show. By the way, a link to the Self-Publishing School podcast will be in the show notes. Hey, Chandler Bolt here and joining me today is Shalene Johnson. She's written multiple books and we're going to talk about a couple things today. Number one, writing a book with ADHD. We've never talked about it. Mm. I have ADHD. A lot of you have heard my story of C-level English student, college dropout, aka least likely to write a book. <laughs> and so we'll talk about that. And then maybe we'll even have time to get into you know, using a book to grow your business, all that fun stuff. But hey, why books? Why write them? Why are they a part of your business? Yeah. Well, so for me, the first time I wrote the book, it was a way for me to differentiate and to almost show people who I really am and what was really important to me. At the time, I was well-known for fitness, and that was kind of the entrepreneurial pursuit. That, that particular pursuit is what helped me to become known, although I'd been an entrepreneur and doing a lot of different things long before that. And so when fitness became the thing that took off, I was like, but wait, this isn't like what I wanted to do or be known for. It's just kind of was the one business that really exploded. So I was speaking to my agent and I said, I really want to help people start a business. I want to help people with personal development. And he said, you can't do that. And I said, well, I want to write a book about personal development and goal setting. And he said, well, you can write a fitness book, but you can't write one on personal development because nobody knows you for that. So I took a year to transition my audience to help them not see me as a fitness person per se, but more so someone who helps people accomplish their goals. So the first book, that was kind of like, for me, it was like kind of letting people know because I, I didn't have an infomercial to get out to help people understand what it is I did in personal development. So it was a way to like tell the world what was important to me. The second book was more of a business decision. And so- Talk to me about the difference in those two. Yeah. Second book I really want to write. I had a, a very, very expensive, and I suggest everybody get a business coach. But you know, when, when you pay a business coach a lot of money and they tell you to do something, I'm one of those people, I'm coachable and you're the expert. So I'm going to do what you've told me to do. And she just, we really kind of like butted heads. I'm like, I don't want to write a book about this. I just don't want to do that. It was her belief at the time that that's really what the movement for this nutrition slash habit program that we've developed, what it needed to catapult it and kind of based on other similar type businesses and what we had in mind for the brand globally, it just, it needs a book. That's what's going to give you the PR, et cetera. And so I kind of reluctantly agreed to write that book and it ended up being a, a very different process from what we set out for it to be. And talk to me about that because 
I like that you said the first book was okay, planting my flag on an idea. And the yeah. second book was a business decision tied in with kind of a program that you have and all that. You said the writing process was different or the process as a whole. How was the process different? And I guess looking back, which one was more fun and which one was more profitable? Hmm, that's a good question. Okay, so I would definitely say that my first book was more profitable and not just because of units sold. I actually had a much better deal the second time around kind of almost a self-publishing hybrid that I did with Hay House. The first book I signed with Rodell. Rodell? Yeah. And that book, although my deal wasn't as good, that ended up being a better moneymaker for us because it became the catalyst for journals. It became the catalyst for programs. We pre-sold the book and in doing so gave people like an online course that we later upsold them to a, a higher priced online course. So we just, we had a, a lot better business model around that book. The second book that went through on method, that book, even though we had a better deal, we didn't have the same kind of system set up around it in terms of writing them. The second book, I said, it was so painful to write the first one because I'm not a writer, you know, and, and with ADHD and it's so hard to focus and all of the things. So the first book was like kind of painful to write. And I didn't want to go through that process again. At the time that it was suggested, I write through one through one method. I'm like, there's too much going on. I can't do it. And I'm really good about knowing, like, I know exactly what I can handle on my plate. And I said, I can't handle that being on my plate right now. So we set up the system where I would use a ghostwriter and it was a book about nutrition and habits, et cetera. But it also had a component of recipes. So I said, we'll outsource all of the recipes, all the photography for all the recipes, everything, the testing, et cetera. And I'll use a ghostwriter. And that just didn't work for me. All the, the recipes, et cetera, did. That turned out beautiful. It's the best part of the book. But using a ghostwriter for that book, just it was cumbersome, expensive, painful, and it didn't work. And I think in other circumstances, it might have. But for this particular book, it just did not work. I've heard so many people say mm. that exact same thing. It's really? Like oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is I contracted with a ghostwriter and I'm thinking, all right, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to throw money at the problem. And then a year later, I get back the manuscript six months later, whatever. It's not that great. And then I have to scrap it and then just go do what I was putting off to begin with, yeah. which is actually writing the book. So in what ways did it didn't did it not work? How did you pivot from there? I mean, did you end up having to write the whole book or what? That yes, like? to, to from the yes, all the way through. But, and that was okay. I mean, it is what it is. The painful piece was that I'd hired a ghostwriter, a really, really high end. I said, listen, we're not going to skimp. If we're going to have somebody ghostwrite this, I want them to take my words, my language, and assemble it in this order. And we'll give them the outline. And the book was basically already existed in video form. So I thought, do we just take the transcripts and then she'll zhuzh it up and we'll just pay the best person in town or on the planet to do this, who's actually done this type of book. The first like couple of chapters I got back, I was like, oh, this is so, 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 so far off. I don't even know where to start. It's like, why are these from my transcripts? And so that was the first step. And then just kind of like trying over and over and over phone calls after phone calls, after Zooms, after rewrites, and finally just realizing like, okay, this is just an expensive mistake, you know, because she'd put in the work and the time, but it wasn't even close. And then I thought, this is actually going to be a lot faster if I just sit down and write it. And that's the process. 
It certainly wasn't that easy, but it was that simple. Yeah. Simple, not easy. I like the distinction. So you said just sit down and write it. And this is where I think we can get into the ADHD part. Like as someone with ADHD, how do you do that? Is there anything that you learn? How do you feel like the, I mean, there's so many routes we can take here, but what did the process look like? Gosh, it was horrible. It was really, really, I told people, if you want to do something horrible for your health, write a health book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because my mental health and my physical health, like really suffered during that time. I'm not going to lie. I hated the process. I just, I'm not going to lie and tell you, you know, by the end of the book, I'd figured out a process. I never did. I struggled every single day and I would listen to podcasts on how to structure your time. And I bought programs. I kept trying to find something that would give me that consistency. And I just never discovered it. So the whole process of writing the book was painful, but the silver lining in it was that it felt a little bit like therapy. And there are these moments as a writer where you're reworking and reworking and reworking a sentence or an idea in a paragraph that you've said it a million times, but when it's on paper, it just doesn't feel the same. You just keep reworking and reworking. And suddenly you're like, did I just come up with that? Oh my gosh, this is going to be so easy for people to understand. I can't believe that just came out of my brain four hours later. And so those things really helped me to create a better program. And the book, I think, stands the test of time. And I'm just so happy that it was from start to finish my voice. And I don't know that I would ever use, for me, a ghostwriter again. I'm just too picky. Same. Every word matters. Like I would say, I would never use that word, even though it wouldn't matter to anyone else. But I just know I would never say that word. It's not your voice. Now, I love that you you spoke on the crystallization of ideas. Mm. I think that's one of the beautiful things about writing a book on something. So it forces you to crystallize your thoughts into a cohesive thing that kind of like you said, I always joke that it's free therapy (laughs) because you're feeling like, all right, I'm putting this in a written word. And so if I'm putting it in the written word, I got to know that I think this and how I think it and how I want to say it and all that stuff. And so that's just, it's cool to hear your experience on that. And it really was, you know, therapeutic. Like I think the part of the book, I don't know if there's any studies done on this, but I assume that most people skip introductions, but the introduction to me, I tried to write the book thinking about how do most people read a book? And I know for me, I will read usually like the first three or four chapters. And then I will tell people I've read the book. Mm. <laughs> so I know I'm like, I got to get all of the good stuff in those first yeah. three or four chapters. Cause everyone's going to say they've read the book mm. based on those first couple of chapters. And so I kept thinking about that. Like I got to go heavy, heavy in the front so that people, even if they make it through the first chapter, they kind of can regurgitate the concept that and the introduction ended up like being forced to write that introduction helped me to go like, oh, wow, this all makes sense to me now. Like it really was therapeutic. Yeah. Now you talked about how there wasn't really a process per se. What did it look like? I mean, and kind of back, because I know this is something that you're super passionate about. I've seen you posting a lot about is is life with ADHD. Like, so how did you fit around that? Or how did you adapt your style? Was it short spurts? Was it? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for asking that. Cause it it is very different for each and every person, but I think if you're easily distracted, even if you don't have an ADHD formal diagnosis, mine came at age 45. It's part of the reason why I wrote the book, realizing how much I could change my ability to think clearly and to focus and 
to feel more empowered and in control of my focus by using lifestyle modifications. You know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know how much my diet affected my cognition. And so that part of it, in the beginning, I just would try to go to the office and write, or I would just try to write wherever I was normally doing work and realizing like, this isn't, I'm not even getting a paragraph done. That's not going to work. So eventually I had to honor the way my focus works, which means there's a certain time of day where I feel hyper-focused, where I can be like deep in thought. And when I'm in that mode, it is my responsibility to create an environment and boundaries that allow me to stay uninterrupted and without any distraction and to recognize my own Achilles heel. You know, like if I can hear a voice in the other room, I'm going to wander in there to figure out like what they're talking about. If I can hear music in my head, I'm hearing the lyrics and I'm thinking about the lyrics and I stop writing. If there's tabs open, I, you know, Amazon, whatever. So literally I would have to make sure I wasn't connected to the internet and that there was nobody around me. It was complete silence and it was the right time of the day. And that meant, and I had to do that because we were so far behind because of the, you know, ghostwriting decisions I'd made. We were so far behind that I was really under the gun and I had to make that deadline. So I decided to basically step away from my business. So those, you know, five hours every day that I was working on my business, I had to just step away. I didn't see any of my employees. I shouldn't say employees, my team, like maybe once a month. So if I'm being really honest, it had a detrimental effect on our business. It had a pretty gnarly impact on like my mental health. I didn't enjoy it. I really just, but I'm happy with the final product. And when I write another book, which I will, I just learned so many things I did the wrong way with this one Hmm. in the process. Yeah. Well, it sounds like in the process of that, you discovered some things that worked for you. Absolutely. Yes. Which I really, I mean, I resonate with all those things about the environment, the type of day, the voices, the internet off, the all yeah. those things. Cause it's yeah. just, you can just spiral off. And it's like, they say, yes. you know, it's like, you know, when a writer's on a deadline, cause that's when they're on social media. <laughs> like, oh, that's so funny. The most, the most uncomfortable thing to do is to write. So it's well, our brains, especially I've, I feel like with ADHD, our brains will do anything but write, or they that's want right. to do, cause it's uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So, you, so your, your brain just kind of bounces around. Did you do any music? Did you, was it no words music? It was just totally silent. Yeah. There, um, headphones. there's some like binary sounds that I would sometimes play if I was really struggling mm-hmm. to focus or to, more so to block out noise. Like there are certain mm-hmm. occasions where I was working for my home office and there might be other people in my home. And so I would wear headphones and play a binary soundtrack that didn't have any, mm-hmm. any lyrics to it. Also a really key thing for me is in order to get in that mode, right? To be excited about it, to feel creative, not just like it's scheduled at 11. So I must sit down and write. I gave myself these windows and it always started with what I know is the right process for me to get into that mode, which is play. I have to be physical. I have to make people laugh and I have to be Mm. able to play and goof around and do something creative to help me get into that super focused creative mode. So I would roller skate. I would go on Instagram live and I would try to make people laugh. I would goof around. Like, so the first half of my day was kind of for me 
I should say first half of the day, my mornings were designed to help me get into that mode. Any tips for people who are, because you've discovered that that's your trigger, that's your yeah. thing that gets you into that mode. Any tips for people who are trying to discover what that is for them? Yeah. You've got to keep a journal because there are days where you're like, dang, that felt so good. Like I just literally was on a writer's high or on a project high where you're just like, you're just flying through things. Ideas are coming to you so fast and you feel creative and you lose all track of time. When that happens, take note of everything. How did you sleep the night before? Did you exercise before that? Were you eating? Were you not eating? Like what was going on in the environment? What led up to that feeling so that you can do your best to recreate it? And I think most people will find that there is a process. There are these common things that keep popping up and you're like, oh, you know what? What I'm noticing is that I've always went roller skating in that when I get into that mode or I did a really intense hit workout or it was on the days that I did yoga. So I think it is important. And I do believe, especially for those of us who have a difficult time focusing, it's not that I believe. I mean, I know now that there's so much to thinking about how you can create more brain-derived neurotropic factor in your own brain, like allowing those synapses to connect faster, allowing your brain to recall information, to process quicker. You need that to be a great writer, to be a writer, to write any book. And that's something we all have the ability to create. And we do create, especially when we exercise. But the interesting science behind this now we're learning is it's especially true for any exercises where you're focused on lower body. So leg day, before that big chunk of writing that you've got to finish. And so is that the, so I guess that relates to the rollerblading. Is there anything, cause I don't fully understand that concept. Yeah. Is there anything else that you do to kind of turn your brain on in that way? I just feel those things happening in my brain. You know, people talk about brain fog or not being able to focus or, you know, ideas are kind of like everywhere. If I personally can't exercise, I have a difficult time focusing. I have a difficult time a tougher time, you know, and to the average person, it, you wouldn't notice. But for me, I just find I have to work so much harder to keep my brain on track. Exercise, it's a remarkable thing how closely connected it is to our brain and the synapses and the way that things connect and fire and process. And right now, my husband and I are caring for my father in law who has Alzheimer's. So I'm like deep into Alzheimer's research right now and just looking at. Like every day on the news, we're hearing about some new drug company who's quote unquote found a miracle cure for Alzheimer's, which, you know, if you look at it, it's like, oh, it kind of helps with early onset and it's really no miracle. But the things that are a miracle, you'll never hear on the news, like the Harvard study that found walking just 25 minutes a day reduces your chances of Alzheimer's by almost 30%, 25 minutes a day. So that tells us that there's something very powerful about exercise. Mm. We were meant to move. And so I think for anyone who has a difficult time focusing, move, you know, and these writers that can spend like four hours at a time, God bless them. That's great. I couldn't do that. I could go for about an hour and a half max for mm -hmm. me. And then I need to do something physical again in order yeah. to get back into that flow state. Got it. Did you ever do stand up desk? Treadmill yeah. desk, oh, yeah. anything like that while riding? I couldn't do the treadmill desk, didn't work for me, but I have a Peloton mm -hmm. and I have 
I wish I could give you spin tray. So if you want to look it up mm-hmm. on Instagram, because I think almost everyone has a Peloton now, there's an account called at spin tray. And it's this dude who it's not endorsed by Peloton, but he's created like an adapter that allows your Peloton handlebars to move back. And then he's built a tray on top of that sits on top of the handlebars. That's perfectly ergonomically designed for you to type and pedal. And that for me was also a godsend, you know, because you just feel like when you're just sitting there writing about your, <laughs> I'm writing about exercise, I'm writing about being healthy, <laughs> and I'm feeling like I got to move my legs. Yeah. So you were riding your Peloton while writing your book. Not like, you know, I'm trying to win the Tour de France, <laughs> but like just to keep like my heart rate up. And yeah, yeah. sometimes I would, you know, get a good sweat because it's like, okay, I've got another hour. I can't just sit here. But yeah, now I use it for returning my emails. I use it whenever I've got it. Again, something where it's like, okay, this will keep me here and focused. I think that's another yeah. great tip for me. If I really need to get focused, I I'm not pedaling for a workout, but yet I am getting activity in. Yeah. And it's so interesting because it's similar to you're keeping another part of your brain busy so that you can focus, which yeah. this is what I've heard with, you know, listening to audiobooks on 2X feed or something is that sometimes it actually helps with retention because your brain can comprehend whatever it is, 200 something words a minute. And most audiobooks That's are at 130 words a minute. So actually speeding it up keeps your brain from being distracted. That's in so interesting. Way. I hadn't heard that, but that makes sense why I do like to listen to audios faster. Cause if the person's yeah. a slow speaker, I might start daydreaming. <laughs> yes. And the same way of maybe you're like me, where it's just when I'm driving and listening to an audiobook, my retention will actually be better oh, than yeah. if I'm, you know, going around the house and doing stuff because then that takes brain space but not so much that I can't focus on what's actually being said, that sort of thing. 1,000%. So, I mean, it's so cool seeing the intersection of obviously some of what your books are about and your background and that sort of thing in health and fitness overlapping with helping you write better. We've talked about the exercise piece. Anything that you found on the diet piece that helped with either brain fog or focus or concentration as it relates to your writing? Yes, but I didn't apply any of that. I'm not going to lie and tell you, like, literally, I wasn't taking my own advice. My diet got worse while I was writing because it was like stress. I've got to get this book done. And I just know so many authors. I don't want this to be like a cautionary tale, but I've heard from so many authors who are like, oh, you know, I had this flare up and I threw out my back and I wasn't doing anything. And it's like a super fit, you know, motivational speaker. But I will say this. The one thing I learned and set boundaries for myself very early on is I wasn't going to do any all-nighters, you know, because that's something I did in college. I think a lot of us work best under pressure. So we're like, I'll just do an all-nighter and I'll get like eight hours done. And I just told myself for this book, I'm not going to do that because it will truly compromise my ability, my quality. And you have to understand like the damage that does to your brain to be sleep deprived. And many authors will do that. They will work late into the night because that's when it's finally quiet, you know, or or maybe for a lot of us, you're writing and also trying to maintain a business, you know, and I made that decision. I was like, I could do this at night and still keep my businesses running, but I made a decision that my health, especially my brain health was more important at that time than, you know, making sure that we got ahead that last quarter of the year. I would caution people from doing that because that kind of damage to your brain will come back to haunt you later. 
for sure. Were you ever prescribed Adderall or Ritalin or did you take any while you were writing? Like, yeah. if so, did it help? Yes, all of the above. So when I was diagnosed at age 45, at that time, I was on a medication, I can't think of the name of it, for narcolepsy because they thought I must be narcoleptic because I could you know, be in my car. And if I was sitting at a light for like 30 seconds, I could fall asleep. And it wasn't narcolepsy. If we'd done a little further investigating, we would just find I was just super sleep deprived. So once we figured out that it was ADHD, got off that medication, I worked with the Amen Clinic, who their primary goal is to get people off medication. But there are two different types. The Amen Clinic believes that there are seven different types. They've done more brain scans than anybody. So it's difficult to criticize them or, or to find fault, but they've done more brain scans than any other organization or clinic in the world, especially with those who have traumatic brain injuries, ADHD. And they believe there are seven different types of ADHD. Certain types, when they are taking Adderall or Ritalin or another quote unquote ADHD medication, they'll find that it makes them anxious or nervous or it depletes their creativity. And for some people, it actually makes them obsessive and riddled with anxiety. But there are two different types of ADHD that tend to benefit from Adderall. And one of those is the type of ADHD that I have. So they put me on a low dose of Adderall. Me personally, I, don't, I haven't had any side effects. I've never had to titrate up, but I feel a huge difference when I don't take it. And I also learned how to change my lifestyle. And that made probably, I would assume, a bigger difference than anything. So like whenever people say to me, like, should I get a medication? I'm like, sure, maybe, but do all the lifestyle stuff first. Like figure out your sleep, understand what supplements you need to be taking. Because there's so many supplements that actually help our brain to connect those synapses. For example, BDNF is something we should produce naturally, but many of us don't. So you can take a supplement that increase and boosts those things that we should produce naturally. Having your hormones checked, you know, so many people when their progesterone levels are low or testosterone levels are low or estrogen is high, like it just messes with your brain's ability to make sense of things and focus. And that's why you hear so many people saying, I've got brain fog. This is so great. It's I'm sure you you feel this way when you start diving into this research and when you hear other people talking about it. And I'm, I'm my hope is that this is what the way that people are feeling when they're listening to this. Is it feeling of validation of mm. even for me personally, just hearing what you're saying is like, oh man, that's so similar to my experience. I can fall asleep very easily. Mm. I, I wonder if that's tied to ADHD or maybe also being tied to high energy levels. Mm. And so it's like, I take a nap every day, but then there's also, I was hearing you explain Adderall and I was on Adderall for two years in college and I was, you know, self-prescribed or diagnosed growing up of like, by every teacher I ever had, like that kid has ADHD, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which I think, I think it can be dangerous to speak into your kid's life. <laughs> oh, you're right. But, but then, you know, at some point go to a doctor and say, yes, you have it. And then Adderall. But then what I noticed is that Adderall really helped me focus and it was really helpful. I'm glad I was on it. And I'm also glad that I am off it now, but almost had an inverse effect specifically with writing. And so I would actually, I would go in the library and pull an all-nighter working on a paper and it would be write a couple sentences. Oh, that's stupid. Do, 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 mm. delete. A couple more sentences. That's dumb. Do, 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 delete. 
and repeat, repeat, repeat. And then it wouldn't be until the Adderall was wearing off that I could actually write the paper. Whereas other things, it would be, you know, it's like, oh, this is going to help me study math. And then I'm just super focused. And then I go take the math test or whatever. Right. But it was interesting how it almost acted differently depending on what I was doing and inverse effect for me personally with writing. Well, because I talk so much about ADHD, trying to, you know, normalize it as much as possible. I've got this great community where we share these kinds of things. And I can't even tell you how many people I've heard. They've just believed, okay, well, Adderall is going to be my solution or something similar. Right. And they get on it and it makes, felt like they had to keep upping their dosage. They felt addicted to it. They felt hyper jittery, shaky. They lost their appetite and they lost their creativity, but they're also afraid to get off of it. And I found yeah. so many people are like, I, I was afraid to get off of it. But then once they figured out like, oh, there's supplements that I can take that make a huge difference. And the things that I'm doing with, you know, calming my mind and that it was actually exacerbating their symptoms, changing them. And so it's interesting how it affects all of us differently. Yeah, it is interesting. I feel like in a lot of ways it trains your brain. At least that was my experience where it was you know, obviously the science behind it is, you know, you're flushing your dopamine, which depending on what you're using, right. With Adderall, it's this, and I was, the doctor put me on a high dose. And so it's flushing your dopamine, which there's question marks around, okay, over a long enough time period, what does that do to you? And, but then I I resonate to what you're saying, which is it would, I feel like I was less of me when I was on it. And I, to the point where, and maybe you can relate to this, I would see people, you know, I'm walking at college and I would see someone and my natural personality is, Hey, oh my gosh, good to see you. Let's talk. But on Adderall, I was like, I hope they don't see me. I've got stuff to do kind of bypassing and, and then all that. But then the flip side, which I think is, is interesting. And this is, you know, I've got this video on why I think ADHD is a superpower and all this stuff. And my controversial or maybe not controversial opinion, I don't know, is I, like, I think a lot of people with ADHD should take Adderall for a year or two. But then for me, it was like, I need to get off this. Mm. But I felt like it retrained my brain in a way where it was like, there was this new level of possibility. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. it retrained at a higher ceiling. And now I'm like, all right, I have the lifelong benefits of this, but I'm not using it. But now they added creativity of being off of it. Yeah. So my theory is that I feel like it was a blessing that I didn't get a diagnosis. First Mm. of all, my father got his diagnosis at age 73 and just like a year after mine. Cause once I got my diagnosis, I'm like, Oh, I have to see my dad's brain. Cause we are the same person. (laughs) So it's very interesting to see his brain, but I feel like it was a blessing that I was not diagnosed for most of my life because it forced me, although I was trying to hide it, and compensate for it. Like those were really valuable lessons and tools and habits and little systems I had to put in place that it was the only way I was going to survive. You know what I mean? It was the only way I was going to be successful. The only way I was going to make things happen was to have these weird, crazy, bizarre habits and rituals and ways of doing things. I wonder if I'd been diagnosed, would I have not been afraid and just asked other people to compensate for me mm. versus me figuring out how to manage it myself. So mm. I don't know. I don't know if everyone needs to be on it, but think about it. Our brains are so temperamental. Like 
So to think that two people who have ADHD, it's going to be exactly the same. You know, we have different traumas and we're raised by different parents and there's different genetics in our brain. And every time you've bumped your head or have had a concussion, your environment, like so many things impact our brains mm-hmm. so that we're all going to be so different. Yeah, this is so great. Well, hey, what would be your kind of parting piece of advice for other folks with ADHD, writing a book, running a business kind of based on your experience? I would say to anyone who has ADHD, you've got to have a better system in place than I had. And most importantly, I think personally, it takes us longer time to do things. It takes me longer to do everything that I do takes longer than my friends who don't have ADHD. So I might move slower in my career. I might move slower in writing my book. I might need a more realistic deadline. Because it never feels good to disappoint people. That sucks. And it never feels good to feel like you're less than or inept. So my parting words of wisdom would be to give yourself a lot more buffer and a lot more room so that you feel good about the process and you don't feel like you're constantly chasing or behind or you're disappointing anyone. That's so great. Shalene, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. It's been my honor. Thank you. Super fun conversation. I look forward to hearing it. Yeah. If there's one thing that you've heard over and over again on Build Your Tribe, it's this. Do what you do best, but then outsource or hire or consult or invest in other people who know what they do really well. But the same is true when it comes to growing your reach. If you need more eyeballs, if you need more people to know about that thing that you offer, that thing that you sell, that business that you are trying to grow and you're trying to do that with social media, may I suggest the best deal on the internet? Yes. When it comes to Instagram, I want to invite you to check out Insta Club Hub. Myself and my son, my co-host, Barack Johnson, we're the founders of Insta Club Hub, and it is rocking people's worlds. We have clients who've seen over 3,000% growth in their Instagram reach in less than seven days. We have people with under a thousand followers reaching four million on a reel. We've had people who've increased their visits to their website by over 300% in less than five days. It's pretty amazing the difference that can be made by just doing a few simple tweaks. It's a monthly membership. It's an amazing community. We teach live. You know, you hear us all the time on the show, but wouldn't you like to hang out with us live? We're pretty fun together. I got to tell you. So I want to invite you to go check it out yourself. Go to instaclubhub.com and learn how easy and affordable it is to work with your host, Brock and Shalene Johnson. 